You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, it was 19 years ago, almost exactly, that I heard some of the most uh, life-changing words that I ever heard. I got, it was uh, Mahoney State Park. I was down on one knee, and uh, I asked a, a girl to marry me. Just any girl, just picked one. I figure, no. No, Bree and I had been dating for a while. She knew it was coming. She knew what she wanted to do, but it's just like, okay, you know, like you get to that moment, you get down on one knee, you're like, man, I really hope, I hope I hear good words here. I, I would have I settled with like, eh, okay. Or even I think about it would be like not a no, but it was, uh, she said, the sweetest words, she said, it would be my highest honor, which was more than I expected and more than I deserved, um, but uh, a very sweet response to an appeal, a question, as I came to her expecting one thing and expecting something good, but uh, receiving something even more than I asked. And what we have in Mark chapter 2 is we have someone who is brought to Jesus expecting one thing and getting a whole lot more than what they thought and actually getting something much better and so some of even better words than I heard on that good day, which was a good day, um, this man hears even better words than he expected in Mark chapter 2. So let me go ahead and read Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. This will be our text today. And here's what it says. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there were, was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose. And immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this eyewitness account of Jesus doing something very profound, incredibly profound, giving words of life to this man who just wanted healing, and yet you gave him so much more than physical healing. You gave him a right relationship with God through the forgiveness of sins. God, may we hear your voice to us today in whatever affliction that we might walk in here with. May we hear from Jesus today, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. May we see and hear you today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is the bottom line, is that Jesus, all, so far, all throughout Mark, we have been given this... Um, Mark has been trying to argue with us that Jesus has authority. He is the, the authoritative king who brings God's kingdom into the world, and that is the good news. And so the bottom line today is just that Jesus has authority to forgive your sins. Jesus has authority to forgive your sins. That's the bottom line. Everything else in this message is driving at that one point. That's the one point maybe of the book of Mark, but particularly this particular um, 
this particular story. So what I want to do is just walk through the elements of a story. Every good story has a setting, has characters, then there's a conflict between those characters in some way, and then a climax and a resolution. So we're just going to walk through this story looking at each of those. So first of all, the setting. The setting is that he has returned to Capernaum. If you remember from chapter 1, he had set up camp in Capernaum, and Capernaum was really basically Jesus' home base. In fact, today, there's still a sign on the gate to the ruins of Capernaum that say, the town of Jesus. So when, in Mark chapter 2, when it says that he went home, not talking about Nazareth, that was kind of like where he grew up, but actually, Peter's house was really his home base. And so this is, uh, you know, to this day, it's known as the town of Jesus. Uh, so Capernaum was the place where he was back. Now, if you remember, previously, the, lay- the leper chaos, remember he healed a leper, and things got so popular, so crazy, that he had to go out in desolate places. There was such a crowd, there was such chaos, there was so much going on that he couldn't do the ministry he wanted to do in any towns. So he's out in the wilderness waiting for just the popularity to die down a little bit so he can get back to doing his ministry. And it appears that at some point he snuck back in, right? It says, and he returned to Capernaum after some days, letting the whole leper incident kind of die down, letting his popularity die down, letting things cool off. It was reported that he was at home. So he must have snuck in at some point and got away with it for a few days in Capernaum before people again began to crowd around him, just marveling at his ability to cast out demons, marveling at his ability to to, uh, to heal diseases, marveling at his teaching above all. And so they're gathered around him in Peter's home. That's the ruins of Peter's home. They're pretty sure about as much as you can archaeologically that that is where Peter's home is and that those are the ruins of Peter's home. So you can just picture this event happening within that tiny little house. Um, and, uh, and what's happening is that the crowd is again becoming, beginning to gather around him. This house is not very big. It's crowded. And people are like just crowding to try to hear through the windows, try to hear what he's saying. And there's such a, um, a, a crowd around him. And it says that he was preaching the word to them. And we just get this shorthand for the word being the message of the kingdom that we saw at the beginning in chapter 1. The message of the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the gospel. That's what he's preaching to them. He's unpacking to them how the kingdom of God has come, that he's the king, that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and that the right response is to repent of their sins, repent of their own self-sovereignty, and bow the knee to him to believe the gospel. That's what's meant by when it says in verse 2 that he was preaching the word to them. So here we go. We've got this setting of this, this, uh, this just crowded place as people are just hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. And then we have the characters. We get introduced to the characters in verses 3 through 6. It says, And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed where the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Okay, we'll just pause there before we get into this. And we just get introduced to all of these different characters in the story. First, we have the curious crowd, right? Crowd is gathered around him. The crowd has appeared before. The crowd is just sort of this nameless, faceless mass of people. And what's interesting is that in the Gospel of Mark, crowds are never really seen very favorably. They seem to more get in the way of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not going for the biggest possible crowd, at least not at this point. One commentator said this, crowds form audiences for Jesus' teaching and they're objects of his compassion, but they're never described as turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. You never have the crowds turning to Jesus. You only have individuals. 
groups, sometimes some brothers or a family. But you never see a crowd really responding uh, in the way that Jesus really means to. He really goes kind of one by one. The single most common attribute, this commentator says, of crowds in Mark is they abstract, obstruct access to Jesus. And this story is no exception. In fact, maybe it's the first one. Is that someone that really needs Jesus can't get to him because of the people that are so crowded around him. And so we have the curious crowd. That's character number one. And we'll see the part that they play in the story is largely they're kind of in the way. They'll eventually kind of respond at the end of the story and worship. But for the most part, they're kind of just like uh, kind of in the way a little bit. Next, we have the passive paralytic. We never hear a word said from him. We never have like anything. He doesn't say anything in this account. He doesn't do anything as a paralytic. He's not doing or saying anything until he gets to the end. He picks up his mat and just goes home, just obeys Jesus, you know. What is his ailment? Well, we don't really know exactly other than he's paralyzed and there's nothing he can do about his condition. That's the most important thing to know about this guy is that there's nothing he can do for his own condition. He can't get himself to Jesus. He can't make himself well. He needs others to help him get to Jesus. He's going to need Jesus if he's got any hope at doing anything. So that's important to re recognize that this paralytic is completely unable to do anything about his situation. Now, the fact that Jesus brings up sin has made some speculate maybe his ailment is because of some sin he committed. Not that God was punishing him, but maybe he did something he shouldn't. And now he lives not only with this paralysis, but the regret of what led to his paralysis, which was something he shouldn't have done. We don't know. We're just not sure. We just know he's a paralytic. He's not even given a name. Because maybe in some sense his name is not what matters most. In fact, he's really only known by a, as a man of of paralysis. He's really just known by his ailment. He's known by what's wrong with him. Any of you been in that situation where you're really just known more for what's wrong with you, right? But he's, he's brought to Jesus. He can't, well, he can't get to Jesus on his own. The crowd's in the way. And so we have these four faithful friends. They're unnamed as well. And I kind of wonder as I'm reading this, no one, no other commentator or scholar picked up on this. Maybe I'm just a genius or maybe I'm making stuff up. Maybe it doesn't matter. So I'm wondering if it isn't like maybe the four disciples. Because at this point, there's just four disciples that have been brought to him. They have been told that they're going to be fisher of men if they follow him. Laying down, putting a man in, in the hole of a roof kind of feels like fishing with nets. Like, <laughs> right? So I don't know if that's the case or not. But these four faith, faceless, nameless guys climb up on the roof that you can kind of see from the house. Your houses could really only be as big as like the trees in the area because that's how you did the roofs is flat roofs. You put beams across. Those beams are only as long as the trees you can find. So your houses can't be very big. Galilee doesn't have large trees necessarily. And so that's, it's a flat roof. There'd be stairs up to the roof. And then these, these wooden beams would be put there. There'd be sticks and thatch. And so you'd have kind of a, a sod roof supported by wood. So it's not that hard to dig through. Um, and what would happen is that this would be a good place to eat, relax, work. It's like a porch. People would go up on there and do pottery, do cooking, do whatever. You know, if you wanted to get kind of out of your stinky home, you'd go up on the roof. So it's not, not hard to get up there. It's not hard to dig through it, but it is a bit disruptive if you can just imagine this kind of tight space where Jesus is teaching and these guys dig through. And we've got these four faithful friends that dismantle Peter's house and disrupt a rabbi's teaching, and dirt is falling on, on scribes. Like, this is a very irreverent thing that they're doing. But they loved their friend, 
enough to be awkward and annoying, right? They loved their friend enough to get him to Jesus, and they had such faith in Jesus, they were willing to do this, right? There's both things going on, both a, a real trust that Jesus could do something for this guy, and a real love for our friend to get him there, because he can't get there himself. So see both of that, both the love of the person who needs Jesus and the belief in the power and compassion of Jesus that if we do this, we disrupt a man's house. We disrupt a rabbi's teaching. We get dirt on our scribes. But for them, it causes them to be audacious and aggressive because they love their friend who needs Jesus and they know Jesus might actually be both powerful and compassionate enough to heal a nobody. To somebody who doesn't even get a name in the text here. And so their love and their faith causes them to be audacious and aggressive for the sake of their friend. What keeps us from coming to Jesus or bringing others to Jesus? Often it's the crowd, isn't it? We're worried about what people think. We're worried that we might make a scene. We overvalue what religious people think, and I think we underestimate Jesus' power and compassion. But if I came to him in the kind of desperation that these four friends come with, what if Jesus turns me down? Like we lack faith, right? Imagine the story we would miss out on if these men were timid or insecure or fearful. Just imagine. They would not have heard Jesus forgive this man's sins. Like if they hadn't have been audacious enough to sort of like get there, to push through their insecurity, to push through their, intimi- their timidity, to not worry about what everybody's thinking all the time, they would not have heard what Jesus said, which is your sins are forgiven. They would not have seen their friend restored. They would not have known the forgiveness of sins themselves. They think they're just coming for healing and they get extra. They get the forgiveness of sins. They would not have seen Jesus worshiped like he was when he demonstrated power in response to their audacious faith. And what might we be missing out on because of our fear and faithlessness? Because we're too afraid of what people think, right? The lost and the unreached are like this parable, this paralyzed man. You and I, apart from Christ, can do nothing about our spiritual condition. We are spiritually paralyzed, worse. We're spiritually dead. We can say, some, we can say nothing, we can do nothing until someone brings Jesus to us or literally carries us to Jesus, Right? And so like these four friends, I think we are called to realize that there is nothing that those who are lost, the unreached people groups of the earth, they can't get to Jesus on their own. There have to be some fishers of men. There have to be some people that are willing to rip some roofs off to get people to Jesus, to be audacious and aggressive, to not care so much what the religious people might think or how disruptive this might be. And so we get these four faithful friends who love their friend enough and believe Jesus enough to do the audacious and aggressive irreverent thing then we get this fourth character which is the suspicious scribes now who are the scribes the scribes are really important we tend to just read the gospels and go they're the bad guys well the scribes played a really important role in in um in history not just jewish history which i'll talk about in a second but also just like global history like when it comes to there's no there's no computers there's no place that you can just like store your files on uh, on a pdf you need people to cop- copy documents because they deteriorate, they get lost, they get damaged. And so scribes have to copy important documents 
and they become masters of those documents, legal documents. And so what happened, the word is grammatus, means writer, copier, keeper, or teacher of the scriptures. All ancient people had large numbers of scribes for the transmission of religious texts and other legal and historical documents. The best known Old Testament scribe is Ezra. He's both a scribe and a priest, which means that he's, he's copied the scriptures so many times that he basically has them memorized. That's why you would go to a scribe, as they know the Bible so well. But he was also a priest, which means he had this authority. And so Ezra was a very powerful, maybe the most famous of the scribes of the Old Testament. If there had not been copyists and interpreters of the Bible in the Old Testament, there would have been no transmission of the biblical text. You wouldn't have the scriptures as we have today if it weren't for scribes being faithful to copy the text accurately and to teach people about it. And they very quickly became authorities on the text. While there's a very limited number of access to the prophets in some periods of, Jew, of the Jewish history, sometimes the Jews were in exile, and scribes were really important to make sure that you had a copy of God's law with you. They were the keepers of the Bible. They were the keepers of the text. They made sure that when that text wore out, they would make copies of it, and they would teach people it, and they would teach people the language of, of God and the law of God. During the exile, scribes organized small groups to study the law of Moses and the history of their people so that their faith would stay alive, so that they could remain faithful to God. When they were in exile, most of the people had begun to speak Aramaic and Chaldean, languages used in Babylon, and were no longer able to read or speak Hebrew. By the time they returned to Jerusalem, they had become quite dependent upon scribes to interpret the scriptures that they couldn't read in their own language anymore. In an effort to present the scriptures so that they could be understood by all the people, the scribes would read them in the original Hebrew and then translate them on the spot and explain them in whatever local language that might be, whether that's Aramaic or Greek, Chaldean. And many scribes became interpreters of the law as members of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish, the highest level of the Jewish legal and administrative state. The scribe services were often given freely and without payment. So before we just bash the scribes, we should give thanks for the scribes. You have a copy of the Old Testament in large part because of the faithfulness of scribes. So these are respected men. These are respected men that know the scriptures, and they are rightly honored in many ways. Unfortunately, while being super important, they had become arrogant. They had begun to believe their own interpretations of the law more than the law themselves. And now they have Jesus standing in front of them and they're intrigued. But they're also, they see themselves as being above Jesus and in a position to critique Jesus. And what we notice in this text is that they have a front row in the house, right? They're in the house. They're the ones that are able to see this miracle happen, which means that they took the front row which means the people that really needed Jesus couldn't get to Jesus because the religious people had to make sure Jesus was teaching right, right? They had to make sure they checked on this guy, right? Now, some of that's legitimate. Like You need to be careful about the teaching of God's word. But it also, what we see is that the scribes are preventing, actually, and we're going to see that throughout the Gospel of Mark, is that the religious leaders who should be the quickest to point out Jesus end up obscuring Jesus, attacking Jesus, defying Jesus. And then we get this final character, which is the provocative preacher, which is Jesus. Man, he's just so compelling. He teaches with authority. He teaches in this compelling way. People are being drawn to him. And what's fascinating is if you can just imagine, Jesus is teaching really important stuff. Like, he's not going to be on earth a super long time. He's got some things to say. He's got a crowd. And all of a sudden, there's dirt falling on his head and sticks and rocks. This is super annoying. Can't, can't the healing wait till after church is done? But Jesus is not in the least 
distracted. He's not in the least annoyed. In fact, when this man is dropped down, they're all covered in dirt. He's impressed. He's impressed by them, right? I think I would be a bit annoyed if that happened like right now, right? But not Jesus, because Jesus cares about people, and he sees an opportunity, not just to forgive this man's sins, but to teach that you may know that he has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus highlights their faith and says the most surprising thing, right? Verse verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, their collective faith, the faith of the friends, and I think also the faith of the paralytic, he said to them, son, your sins are forgiven. What a stunning statement. They're showing their faith by their works, as James says. They're not, they haven't said anything. They haven't said great theology. They haven't done it. But they put two and, together, two and two together in their heads, and they're like, all we know is we have to get to Jesus. And Jesus goes, that's good enough. Faith in me is good enough. And so by their works, they show their faith, and he responds by saying, your sins are forgiven. It's totally unexpected. It's not what they came for, and now we have a conflict. So verses, the last part of verse 6 through verse 9 we have the scribes, right? We just saw that at the beginning of verse 6, where it says, Now some scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is the million-dollar question. That's the question that we should be wrestling with here, because that's the right question. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So you notice that they keep their thoughts to themselves, but Jesus has the ability to kind of read the room. He knows what's going on, right? Now, whether that's a supernatural, he knows what's in their heads, that's possible. Seems like that's maybe what's here. It also might just be like, he knows what he said. He's not an idiot. Like, he knows knows what they're thinking. He knows what he said. He means what he said. He didn't misspeak. He knows what's happening here. And their concern is blasphemy, and rightfully so, because only God can forgive sins. Let me just give you a pile of verses. I could give you more. But let me just give you a pile of verses from the Old Testament that are probably scrolling through these scribes' minds to go, wait a minute, there's only one who has the authorization to forgive sins like Jesus just did. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 103, 2 and 3, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. All of these seeming to indicate that only God can do this. Only the God of Israel can do this. Micah 6, or Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? No one can forgive. No other God has the capacity to forgive like our God. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Psalm 130 verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Psalm 25.18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is right in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. 
God appears to Moses in this really miraculous way. He says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And this is, this is God's own self-description of himself. It's repeated again and again in the Old Testament. When God introduces himself with a handshake, he goes, here's what you need to know about me. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Which you already see in there that God alone has forgiveness, but God also is just. And so we end up with this quandary that the Bible is calling us. The, the Bible doesn't answer, is less concerned with why do bad things happen to good people. The real question the Bible answers is how can God let sinful people into his presence, right? How can God forgive rebellious image bearers? And the reality is that by forgiving sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. And they know it. If he's wrong, he's blaspheming. And Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, that he blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. That's just Old Testament law. So they've got a real problem here because if Jesus is, can't, he's either God or he's a blasphemer. They're right. Their assessment is right. They have an issue here. They charge him with blasphemy. It's the very charge that will get him killed in Mark 14, 64. So right now we have the problem in Mark. The, the primary conflict is that does Jesus really have the divine authority and identity that he claims to? And ultimately, his execution will be based on their charge that he is a blasphemer. So just think about this for a second. Jesus is forgiving this man. Imagine three men. This is an illustration I'm taking from Tim Keller. He doesn't mind, I promise you. He just passed away. He doesn't care at all that I'm taking his illustration. Imagine three men. One man, unprovoked, punches the second man right in the face, and there's blood everywhere. The third man comes up to the first man and says, I forgive you for punching him. It's all right. It's over. Let it go. Now, that's weird, right? What is the second man going to say? You can't forgive him. Only I can. I'm the one who's ultimately been offended, right? When Jesus says that your sins are forgiven, he is saying to the man that ultimately sin is an offense against me. Whatever sins you've committed against others, that's secondary. Your primary sin has been against God. That's what Psalm 51 and most of the Old Testament is that your sin is primarily against God. So any other forgiveness is sort of secondary and ultimately ineffective to change your spiritual state until God has forgiven you. And once God has forgiven you, then other forgiveness flows from that. So Jesus, in a sense, is not just declaring that God has forgiven him. He's actually changing the state. You have moved from being a sinner against me to now forgiven by me. He forgives sins. He claims that authority. And what he does, just think of the sweet way that he says this. Let's not rush past this. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. This term of endearment, this term of relationship, this sweetness of this man who's just known by his paralysis is now going to be known as a son. Son, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus ties the power to forgive sins with the power to heal bodies. And he puts this riddle before the people. Like, okay, I want you to do the math, scribes. Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? And I want you to think about this, this question yourself. What's easier to say? Your sins, this is verse 9, what is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk? We've got two options here. Which is easier? 
What do you think? Your sins are forgiven. That's easier to say because who knows, right? We can't see that. That's easy to say. Lots of people can say that, right? If you say, take up your bed and walk, well, now you're going to be outed as either legit or a fraud, right? But we can't see the sins part. That's obviously easier to say because how would we verify? It's harder to say this because then we would know whether or not you actually have power or not, right? So that's easier to say, but the real question is, which is harder to do? It's way easier to heal than forgive sins. There's lots of people that were able to heal by God's power, but only God alone can forgive sins. So he's tying the two together, saying that I know you can't see whether or not I'm legit in my forgiveness of sins, so go ahead and render a judgment based on what I can do. I'll I'll do the harder thing to say, but easier thing to do. If I do that, then the easier thing, but harder thing to do, you must also conclude that if I have the power to do A, I have the power to do B. I want you to tie them to those two together. Bottom line, I will show you, this is what Jesus says, that I can do the unseen, easier thing to say, but harder thing to do, forgive sins, by doing the seen, harder to say, but easier thing to do, which is heal the man. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's tying his kingly authority to go, I don't just, I'm not just king of the physical world. I am the authoritative God king of the spiritual world. And I'm going to put it in a way that humans could observe, right? I'm going to tie the two together and we get the climax. So, so Jesus has actually set up his own, like he's called his shot, right? He's, he's like, I can, you know, if you think of someone who does trick shots or something, you know, like, he pulls it off. He sets up his own trick shot here to try to show them. And here's what it is. This is his intention. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. This is what I want you to know. So that you may know that the Son of Man has an authority on earth to forgive sins. He said at the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. So Jesus throws down the gauntlet. Render your judgment on my identity and authority by my ability to back up my actions and my words. Right now, am I a blasphemer or am I God? Let's look at the evidence, right? Boom, healed, leading to the undeniable conclusion that what? He can also forgive sins. This is Yahweh in the flesh. This is the one true God. They weren't wrong that only God can forgive sins. It just never dawned on them that God might be in this little tiny stone house with them until this moment. And they have to decide. Jesus calls his shot and he makes it. You see, Jesus doesn't declare the man just forgiven. He changes the reality. Jesus is actually creating the reality of forgiveness and then telling him about it. You were unforgiven in your sins when you passed through that roof. You hit the ground and the moment that I said you were forgiven, you were forgiven. I have changed your relationship to God because I am God. That's what's being said here. And the question here that I think Mark wants us to ask is for us to do the math. If Jesus can can legitimately forgive sins and only God alone can forgive sins, then Jesus must be the God King. He must be the one that was promised if he can do these things. So two questions arise right here. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? This is the first time he calls himself this in Mark. He'll do it 14 times in Mark. This claims Son of Man. Sometimes Son of Man in the Old Testament just means a human being, a person. Like, 
But there's also one place in the Old Testament where the term son of man is tied to a really significant prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this, I saw in the night visions, so this would be uh, 500-ish years before Jesus. So 500 years in the past, there's this prophecy about this title, Son of Man, and what this Son of Man will do. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God, God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, a worldwide, eternal kingdom, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's going to be a divine king. This is going to be a messiah. This is going to be like a David times a thousand, only way better, right? So there's going to be one that comes, and on the authority of the Father, he is going to come, and he is going to bring a kingdom. And Jesus goes, you know what? This is a good time to go ahead and let you know who I am. I am the Daniel 7 son of man. The son of man has come. And he has brought dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve me. His dominion is everlasting and he will not pass away. And that's what Jesus is saying when he grabs that term and says, I am the son of man. So every time that he uses that, remember this Daniel 7 promise. I keep reminding you the next 13 times we see it. Remember Daniel 7, the promise that there would be one who would come who would have these kind of qualities and would have this kind of kingly eternal authority. Remember, in chapter 1, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, that's the Son of Man's job, to bring the kingdom. He's like, right here, the Son of Man is going to do eternal kingdom things right now, like forgive a man's sins forever and prove it to you by showing you the thing you can see, which is to heal him. What will this kingdom be like? We're already seeing it. Forgiveness. This kingdom of God gives will be marked by forgiveness and restoration and worship through the works and words of Jesus. It'll all be through Jesus, which is what we get in the last part, verse 12, the last part of verse 12. And so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. These are just ordinary people like you and me who are encountering something they've never seen before. And they're acting like, man, what? they're amazed by it. And they worship God. One more question that I think would be worth asking here is how exactly does Jesus forgive sins? How exactly do sins get forgiven? We see in the Old Testament that part of God's character is this character of justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. He's just. Like he can't just let people off the hook. It goes against his own case. He would de-God himself if he let sins go unpunished. He would not be a good judge. His holiness would be a threat. I don't know exactly how that works. The Bible holds that out to be that's a consistency in God that must be upheld. His holiness cannot be violated by his image bearers. He cannot, he can delay punishment, but he can't ultimately eliminate it without there being some satisfaction of his holiness and righteousness. The mechanism for that is that there must be death. The wages of sin is death. So there must be a shedding of blood for there to be a forgiveness of sins. The substitutionary atonement is what we sometimes call it. Something in either you have to die for your sins or someone else has to die for your sins, right? But a death has to be accounted for. We see that when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they're covered with skins. An animal died to sort of cover their shame. 
We see Job sacrifices because his kids may have sinned, right? And the whole Mosaic sacrificial system is a mechanism to sort of appease the need for blood sacrifice, Leviticus 16 and 17. In fact, Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in its blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. How can sin be atoned for, made right, dealt with, paid for? By blood. Hebrews helps us unpack this in Hebrews 9. I'm going to read several passages from Hebrews 9 and 10, which show us how it is that the forgiveness of sins is accomplished. Hebrews 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Why? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay? There has to be a death that corresponds. The shedding of blood corresponds with these sins. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible. Here's the problem. The Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient. For it is impossible for the blood of goats, bulls and goats, to take away sins. It's like sweeping it under the rug. Those Old Testament sacrifices didn't ultimately eliminate sins. They just swept them under the rug. They pushed the payment plan for that sin forward in history. So all of those Old Testaments, the sin, the people are, are wanting to draw near to God. They're acknowledging their sin. And God is temporarily pushing that payment forward. He's temporarily pushing that forward by the blood of these bulls and goats until there will be a once-for-all sacrifice, which Hebrews 10 tells us, when Christ had offered for all time, eternity past, eternity future, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, which is what a king does when he completes his victory. When he is done making war and his kingdom is at peace, he sits down. So when Jesus came, he defeated sin, death, and hell with one single sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy the holiness of God, and to extend the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. He sits down at the right hand, meaning there's no more need for any other further sacrifice by you or by anyone for your sins. One sacrifice for all time, waiting from, all, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by one single offering he, was, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence that the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we come into the presence of God, made right with God because of the blood of Jesus. Our sins really did deserve an eternal wrath on, uh, and, and a blood sacrifice, and Jesus gave his blood in our place, and he sat down meaning that his sacrifice is sufficient. Now, that means when it says his sacrifice, all of that forward-looking faith of the Old Testament, where they're like, we don't know exactly how, but we know that by being faithful to God, by acknowledging our sin, by trusting that one day he will deal with our sins fully and finally, they are brought into a relationship with God. Hebrews 11 tells you that by faith, all of these people trusted in the future promises of God that come true in Jesus. So all of those past saints that are trusting in the future, to Jesus' death on the cross, that payment is for them. And all of us, now, 2,000 years after the sacrifice of Jesus, we look back, all who are looking either forward in time or backward in time, to the provision of the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood by God himself, are saved, are forgiven. That's how Jesus forgives sins, is that Jesus is forgiving this man's sins in real time, knowing that just a couple of years down the road, He's going to literally pay for that man's sins on the cross. He's making an advance on the payment. Isn't that amazing? 
That's what the Bible holds out that Jesus is doing here is that he can dispense this going, I'm going to pay for that in the future, but you can have the salvation now because for all time he has saved them. Tim Keller says, if he not only heals the man but forgives him his sins as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step towards the path of his own death. If he's going to actually forgive sins, someone's going to have to pay for that man's sins and Jesus is already putting that debt in his pocket. He's guaranteed that he's going to the cross here by guaranteeing this man's sin, forgiveness. He has to go to the cross now. Someone has to die for this man. If he's genuinely forgiven, someone has to pay for those sins. And Jesus has already put that debt in his pocket. Your sins I will bear on the cross. By taking that step, Tim Keller says, he is putting a down payment on our forgiveness. Jesus, in healing this man, is taking an advance on the payment that he will make at the end of the book. The blood of the atonement of Jesus moves forward in time to all who trust in him like us, but it also moves back in time to all those who, by faith, looked forward to his forgiveness of sins through the substitutionary blood atonement on the cross, including this man, this paralyzed man. That's what the Bible says. That's that's the logic it's putting forth here. So, here's some applications for us. We're almost done. Question number one, have you had your sins forgiven by Jesus? Have you come to him in faith, trusting in his compassion? If not, let one of these precious people lower you to Jesus. Let someone in this room, none of us gets to Jesus by ourselves. I'm standing here a Christian in large part because of my parents and because of a preacher at Trails and Ranch who preached the gospel to me and lots of faithful pastors I didn't get myself to Jesus. Someone brought Jesus to me and let me down to him. You have now been brought. Jesus is literally right in front of you. If you'll put your trust in him, you can hear him say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Have you heard those words from him? Express faith in him. And if you need some help, it's okay. This man needs help. If you need help figuring that out, I'm happy to help you. There's lots of good people here that would be happy to help you. Secondly, Can the needy get to Jesus in our church? Or are we obstructing them? By our attitudes, our cliques, our disposition, is it hard for someone who's really in a desperate need to find Jesus? Would they find this an easy place to be really broken, incapable, not smart enough? I can't get to Jesus on my own. Could this be a place where I would find him? Or are we like the scribes who just want to hear something teaching and make sure it's not. Do we have an attitude where we were here first? We deserve precedence and position. We, we should have things our way. Or is this a place where people could find Jesus and not need a house deconstructed to get to Jesus because we're in the way? Are we rip off the roof kind of friends? Do we have such a sense of the desperate need of our hurting friends And such a confidence in Jesus' authority and compassion that we would do the embarrassing, offensive, taxing, maybe expensive thing of doing whatever it takes to get our friends to Jesus. To maybe even go to an unreached people group on another part of the planet to go, whatever it takes, if I put my family in danger, whatever it takes. Because my love for those who can't get to Jesus on their own and my trust that Jesus has the authority and compassion to forgive those who come to him why would I play it safe and be timid 
And why would I care too much about what people think? Number four, do you know that your biggest problem is your sin? That's always the case. This man was concerned about his paralysis, and Jesus went for the heart. It's not your job that's your biggest problem, your kids, your diagnosis, your spouse, your car, the things that consume our minds, but it's our hearts, it's our sin, it's our biggest problem. That's part of why we have a confession of, a prayer of confession every Sunday, because we need to be reminded of what our fundamental issue is. <laughs> God cares about those other things. He heals the man, but Jesus fundamentally is concerned about the man's heart and relationship with God. We can come to Jesus with anything, but he's most concerned with our standing before God. All else is just band-aids. All else is temporary. And then lastly, does forgiveness through Jesus amaze you and provoke you to worship and wonder? Has it become kind of routine for you? Oh yeah, Jesus saves. Have you lost the wonder? Like, look around the room. Every person in here that's trusting in Jesus is literally a miracle of God's grace. And there are a ton of people who ripped off a roof to get that person there, down through the generations. Just think of all the faithful sharing of the gospel for thousands of years so that you could hear it today, so that you could have his word in your hand. Oh man, does that ever amaze you? The fact that I just preached this message, that we just read these verses. People are giving their lives around the world. People are dying to hear this. And we're kind of like, eh, I hear it every week, right? Oh, may we not be bored with the gospel. Have you grown callous to the message of the gospel? Do you realize that you're sitting next to a miracle of God's grace that Jesus died for? It tells us that heaven rejoices over one sinner repenting, which means that all of heaven stops what it's doing to celebrate one person coming to faith in Christ, which means that continuously since the gospel has been preached, there's always been someone coming to faith in Christ somewhere, which means it's been a nonstop party for every single person. Do you realize what one conversion, one of our precious kids coming to faith in Christ is worth celebrating and worshiping God? Why would we ever miss a Sunday where we would not celebrate this gospel? Why would we ever skip that? To gather together like heaven does and celebrate the fact that the gospel is still true, that Jesus is still saving people, and he might save someone today. Today might be the day when we see him tell someone, son, your sins are forgiven, and we would get to see it. Why would we ever bore of hearing others' testimony? Why would we ever hesitate to share our testimony so that others might worship God or come to know him. Every lost person is a potential party if we'll just open our mouths. It's possible. And what an amazing way to live, this kind of fearless, aggressive, but compassionate life of faith. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends here. Thank you for this awesome passage. There's so many things it teaches us about you and your character. Who has authority to forgive sins but God alone and you threw down the gauntlet and said I do Lord may we be the kind of people that would come to you in faith knowing that we can't fix ourselves and may every single person hear you, you say because of their faith and what you can do son daughter your sins are forgiven if there's any of us in here that needs help I pray that we would ask for help I pray that if there's any of us in here that would be in any small way willing to offer some help, 
that we would be available. God, help us to be like these four friends, to have such a love for people and such a faith in what you can do that we just ask the question and we just invite people to come and hear about someone who can do what no one else can do. That's forgive sins. God, help us to come to you and rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.